This is Founders Talk, an interview podcast profiling founders, building businesses both online and offline. I'm your host, Adam Stokowiak, joined by Dan Benjamin, founder of 5x5 Five Five Studios. How are you, Dan? Hey, I'm, uh, I'm doing well. Why am I on this show, Adam? Well, you know, it's your network. It's my show. We joined up, and that's how it goes. Well, that's right. We're, uh, we're here to sort of launch your brand new show. And uh, why, why this show? I mean, you've got, you've got other shows out there that are, I, I, might, I must say, quite successful and popular. Yeah. The, the Web 2.0 show came about a long, long time ago, way before I even joined it. But uh, it just seen its day, and I felt like making a small change. So Founders Talk was born. Also run the Change Log, both blog and podcast. Pretty popular. Excited. Yeah. Well, this is something new, though. And, uh, and we thought, since we were going to be making it a part of 5x5, five five, that it, it deserved some attention. It deserved, you know, an, a, a proper launch. Should, Absolutely. You know, like, cracking the champagne bottle across the, the bow of the ship before it sets sail, so to speak. That's right. Yeah. Champagne everywhere. I love it. Corks <laughs> flying. But I think the fun thing to take away from this really is that uh, there's lots of founders out there building some awesome businesses, both online and offline. But there's just so much good stories I could tell everybody. And that's really what I want to achieve is to talk to the founders building businesses that you and I both know and love or want to know and love and extract whatever we can from their story and business, whether it's, you know, fame or failure and share that with everyone else. So that's what we're all about. Well, it's exciting. It's a great topic and i think one of the things that people who who enjoy the shows that we put out here always want to hear more of is you know how how did this idea how did this person start this cool thing how how can we learn more about it and then that's what you've set out to do and the first person that you speak with is uh jeffrey grosenbach who yeah. uh, very successful uh with peepcode.com very well known in the screencasting world yeah, Jeff has done a tremendous job over the last, I think he said he's four years old now, going into his fifth year. Just done an awesome job with helping our community become educated on certain topics like Node, Rails, jQuery, even the command line featuring you. So, you know, Jeff's done really well, and I think he's got a unique vision for what PeepCode is, and it needed to be told. So Jeff came on board, sat down with me for 20 minutes, and this episode is what you're going to get from that. Very cool. And I, I know that you've got a lot of other guests lined up too. So we've got a lot of great interviews and, uh, and talks from founders coming up in the future. So uh, let's, let's all listen in. Let's listen in. We're here with Jeffrey Grosenbach. Jeff is the founder, I guess I should probably say, senior visionary of PeepCode. If, if you've been in and around the web development space over the past few years, you'll likely have heard of PeepCode.com. Jeff, let's start off with a quick intro of who you are and maybe even a proper introduction of PeepCode screencasts. Yeah, PeepCode screencasts are about hour-long screencasts on all kinds of topics. I try to hit things that are not very well documented yet, stuff that's not in book form yet, maybe even for a couple of years, and try to really go in-depth, but do it quickly because I know people have a limited amount of time so they can just... uh, sit down and and learn basically the most important things they need to know about jQuery, Ruby on Rails, uh, now Node, all kinds of things um, in about an hour. Yeah, I know for me, uh, learning Git was crucial. I mean, that screencast you did on Git was just the best to to get me as a front-end designer up and started on Git. It was, it was really important to me, for sure. How many screencasts are you at right now? Um... You know, some I've retired as, you know, because open source moves quickly and, and things get out of date. But um, 
in my numbering scheme, I'm at about 48 screencasts, but I also have uh, over a dozen PDF books. And uh, yeah, so it's somewhere around almost 60. Gotcha. That's that's quite a bit. It's an achievement. Well, I guess we probably should start off with a, a congratulations, too. I mean, you just turned four years old. Pico Screencast is now four. Going into your fifth year, August 14th was your birthday. How does that make you feel? Well, as with my uh, normal chronological birthday, I usually forget it, and I forgot this one, too. So, yeah, I guess it happened a couple weeks ago, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's great to still be in uh, business this long and and definitely has required, you know, continuous adjustment and, you know, reacting to technology, business things, all kinds of stuff, you know, even just life changes. Um, so, yeah, I feel, you know, it's, it's great to be able to been keeping it up this long and that people still, uh, you know, supporting the business and, and keep it going financially. Yeah, I think that's awesome, really. So I guess the unofficial title you reserve for yourself is Senior Visionary. What, uh, why did you choose that title and what, what's behind that? Yeah, way back in like uh, 99 or 2000, I was in college. I flew down just for a day to Macworld uh, Expo in San Francisco and met the guy who was the Senior Visionary of Lego. I guess he just tries to think up of new products and stuff like that. And so I always remember that. So, you know, six or eight years later when I started a, my own company, I thought, well, I'll pick that because it's nice to have a fun title and usually, you know, kind of starts a conversation when I give my credit, uh, not give my credit card, give my business card to people. So, uh, yeah, it, you know, it's a fun title and it helps me to think, to remember that, hey, I'm doing something that is new. It's, it's, uh, you know, I'm trying to do things that other people aren't really doing. And that is, you know, so it's, it's a title and it's also kind of a, a goal of continue to be visionary, continue to think about how to move the business forward and, and do new things that, that people want. Yeah, I know for me as a, as an entrepreneur, I know I like to have some fun titles that I apply to myself, but uh, not never one quite as fun as senior visionary. But as a as an entrepreneur, I can't really say it. At some point in my life, I had a on off day where it was you know one day I wasn't an entrepreneur and the next day I was. But my next question for you is: At what point in your life did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Well, I tried a couple little things. With I mean that is a good question because I think it's important to think of oneself. As an entrepreneur, you know, if you don't have goals, then then you have no chance of even getting close to to reaching them. And so, even back in like 2000 or 2001, I launched little software applications, and you know, they did okay. But then I just kind of abandoned them. So I've definitely experimented with different things, but I didn't. I, you know, I guess didn't really think of myself in an entrepreneur as an entrepreneur until I was actually making my full income from it. And to be able to look at the bank and say, oh, I guess I'm putting money in there every month due to a business that I started. So well, I guess I'm an entrepreneur. I guess that was kind of my point too. Like I wasn't really sure if I was or wasn't. I guess that when you become profitable or you actually start making money, like you just said, you sort of get to apply that title. It's not more of a one day you weren't and the next day you are. Uh, let's dive deep into uh, Peepco Screencast. Let's talk about some of the first days of the idea. Like, where did the idea come from? What got you to to really come up with the idea? Can you describe some of the first thoughts on the idea? Yeah, initially, uh, I had been doing some screencasts for clients just to 
show them how to use different software, you know, web apps that I'd written for them. And they really loved being able to just see things right there visually. It was a lot easier than writing a multi-paragraph email or even a phone call. And then it was, uh, you know, on on the wiki or something like that, where they could go back and refer to it later. So I knew that it was a great way to communicate. And, you know, I think with the popularity of Ruby on Rails, and yet things were still changing a lot, there wasn't a lot of documentation. I thought, well, you know, if I, if I did a screencast that was approaching the usefulness of a, a PDF book or something like that, you know, would, would people buy it? So you know, honestly, my first couple ones, I'm surprised that they were as popular as they was because as they were, because I look back on them now and think, oh, I, you know, it's it, the ones I do now are so much better quality and my workflow is a lot better. I read from a transcript and sit, instead of just kind of making up uh, what I was saying on the fly and and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, it was enough to just get it out there and see that people were interested in it. So you pretty much adhere to the minimum viable product methodology. Yeah, and you know, for a lot of things you don't even know what what the full featured uh, you know, Whizbang product even looks like or is going to be. So it's kind of the you discover it by by doing it. Can you uh would you mind sharing maybe what your initial investment maybe monetarily might have been, time and energy and maybe even some dollars? Oh, it was really minimal. Um, I used a third-party shopping cart. I set up just a you know standard blog. Um, I I don't think I even. Oh yeah, the software. I actually just used uh, QuickTime Pro, and I just like pasted things into a QuickTime Pro timeline. So it was like this, you know, twenty-dollar software. It wasn't even a full video editor or anything. So. My initial software investment was very small. I mean, I, I would say probably less than a hundred bucks or something. Now, as a web developer, I already had web servers to to work with and uh, knew how to do at least you know set up my own blog and stuff like that. And I was doing you know I could do my own graphic design. So a lot of it, and I think is is a reason I'm still able to do it now, uh, is that I did a whole lot of the work up front. So. Financially, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say probably less than a hundred bucks that I actually spent initially. Wow, that's encouraging, I guess, for a lot of entrepreneurs out there, huh? Oh, definitely. And uh, you know, I love uh, gadgetry and software, and I've spent easily tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand dollars on software and hardware and all kinds of stuff since then. But uh, but no, I definitely didn't need any of that to to just get a, a prototype out there. So you had uh, really no business partner at first. Did you have a did you have a co-founder or a business partner starting out? No, I I didn't. Uh even now I've tried to think about who, you know what I would who I would uh partner up with cuz I I can see the benefit of that, but um no, I didn't have any kind of business partner. I just did it on my own. You know, and I guess it goes either way. I know Paul Graham has said that they won't fund any companies unless there are two partners because if you can't convince someone else to to uh you know that you have a viable business then maybe it's not a viable business well you know i guess that makes sense if you're getting money from somebody else but if it's just your own money well a lot of the people i know who've tried to start businesses they end up splitting because they don't get along with the co-founder or something like that so 
you know, I guess there's as much benefit as there is risk in it. And, uh, you know, I guess it depends on the, the business and if you really need a co-founder and if you have somebody that you really get along with well. You think looking back on the beginnings of Peepco, do you think you really needed one then? Obviously not, but I mean, if you if, do you think it would have helped you to get there faster or do things differently or be more polished earlier? Oh, yeah. I think there are a ton of things that I could have gotten on faster. For example, it was only within the last six months that I started a mailing list to where, you know, people who have opted in get a, a message once a month just saying, hey, here, here's our new products. Well, you know, that's like three and a half years into the business. And I only recently started that, which has been a great idea. I, you know, I highly recommend if you have a new product, you know, the very first line of code you should write is the form to say, give us your email address if you're interested in this product. Um, so, the, yeah, yeah, there are definitely things that would have been happened a lot faster. But for me, I, you know, I'm not really one in life or business to to have regrets. Uh, you learn along the way and it would have been great to learn some of these things even earlier. But, uh, you know, the, the business has been working and at whatever time I implement these different things, then I benefit from it then. So yeah, the timeline would have been a little bit different, but, um, but, but I made it without it. So let's talk about the goals of Peepco when you first started out. What were some of the early goals, initial goals as a founder? Did you have like a list of 10 things you wanted to achieve or can you give us some idea about the initial goals that you wanted to achieve with Peepco screencasts? Originally, you know, it was kind of a crazy cycle just to, get, to give a little bit of background because right out of right in and out of college, I worked for startups uh, first, like a full Microsoft shop uh, doing like a government related application and then different ones with open source. I remember my first startup that I got uh, working with Pearl. I was so excited and then kind of got into Ruby later and. So, it, you know, at one point when I started getting contracts with Ruby, it was like the most money I'd ever made in my life. You know, I was getting paid $50, 70 $80 an hour. And, you know, that was that was huge. It was way more than I'd ever been been making. But for some reason, I had always said, hey, I want to I want to run my own business. And so initially, I just had the goal of one day a week, if I can have some side project that that allows me to freelance for four days and have one day doing this, doing my own thing, then I'll be happy. So, so my initial goal was, was pretty small. And I, you know, I think that was reasonable because even now a lot of people will hear what I do and they're like, what people pay for anything on the internet or, you know, people pay for digital products. Well, I mean, of course they do. I mean, Amazon has just been saying that they're well, I don't know if they've put out sales, uh, you know, revenue numbers, but you know that they're selling as many or more eBooks than they are physical books. So yeah, people, people pay for digital products, but, uh, but I, I personally didn't even have any idea of how much of a, how much that could support as far as, uh, being personal income. At what point then, I guess, uh, after you met your goal, did you start to see profit and start to get excited about, wow, I can really make money at this. This can grow into a bigger business and it can fully support me. Um, you know, it only took a couple months to equal what I was making on, uh, on other freelancing, even just with that one or two days a week. So, it, you know, I probably could have 
cut loose after even after like three months or something like that. But um, you know, other family and stuff didn't feel as comfortable with that, and so and and I think it was a much better idea, kind of have a little bit of runway, get going at full speed, and then take off when it when it has uh, proven itself a little bit more. So I still, I you know, I went, I quit all freelancing after about nine months, which I you know it seems pretty quick to me, but. Um, but I definitely, you know, I added on about an extra six months beyond what was directly viable just to make sure that, uh, you know, that I had some money in the bank and could, could not only just pay my uh, salary, but have a little bit of a profit too. So what are your thoughts on piracy? How does that impact people? Being a digital product that's downloadable, it can be shared, you know, bit torn and all that good stuff. How does that impact people? And what are your feelings on piracy? Um... It's definitely something that I was aware of early on, and initially, initially it was a little annoying. Even now, I guess it's somewhat annoying. There are quite a few search terms that you can search for. I think maybe even if you just search for peep code, there'll be like BitTorrent uh, links on the very first page of Google or something like that. So, you know, it'd be nice if Google would help me out a little bit more and not publish that kind of stuff on the very first page. But... Uh, but on the other hand, I've talked to a bunch of people who said, hey, I found your stuff on BitTorrent first or I, uh, you know, or, or, I did, or I knew it, it was a paid product, but I didn't want to pay to just try it out. So I went and kind of treated, treated that as a, as a free trial or something like that. And then I came in and paid for it. So, uh, you know, personally, I think it's down to a couple things. It's it's a fact of being on the internet and selling a digital product that people are going to gonna, gonna uh, have it on different sharing sites like that. And I don't really feel like it's impacted my revenue that much. Uh, it, it would be hard to calculate it, so so I don't really have any way to, to verify that. But, um, you know, I guess I feel like a lot of the people who do download from a different site like that probably wouldn't be people who would buy it anyway. Or if they do, then maybe they see, hey, this is great stuff. It's useful. I'm going to go uh, pay, even, you know, buy one episode or buy, buy a subscription or something like that. So, um, yeah, I, I actually, I hired a, what, talking about, you know, having a business partner and stuff like that. What, the way I've kind of filled that in for myself is working with a lot of different contractors. So I worked with a business consultant for a, a couple months, six months or something where, uh, every other week or something, I would go over and talk to her for an hour about whatever issues I was thinking about. And that, that was really helpful. But one thing that kept coming up is, is she thought, well, you should put a lot more energy trying to cut down on, uh, piracy. And, you know, that should be a really big priority. And I just didn't really see it as being that important to put energy into. I mean, there's no way you can stop it. Uh, you know, I think at least for me, I'm never going to put any kind of DRM on there. Cause I know people, you know, I, I hate buying, I don't buy products if they have DRM. And so I don't want to sell one that has it. And I know people want to use, use the product in different ways. You know, people re-encode it to be on their PSP or, uh, whatever, or their different phones that I don't have a copy of. And, uh, I, I want that to be able to happen. So, Piracy, I mean, it's out there, but but I don't really worry about it. I wouldn't even uh, 
I wouldn't even spend time trying to cut down on it. Just uh, do, do your business, make a good product and make it some that people are willing you know, want to find useful and want to come pay for. I have to agree too. As a user of Pico Screencast, I know that I enjoy the fact that there's no DRM on there, and I can say that it's probably something we can leverage back to our community too. Coming from open source and a lot of stuff you do, I mean, what you do is very, very useful, and you put a lot of energy into it. And I think as a respectful community, you know, I would always, if I even if I had access to a repository of Pico Screencast, I would still go and and purchase them on my own because you know I want to support you in your business and you do a lot of fun stuff there that you know just truly needs to be paid for because i think you do a, a fantastic job which kind of leads me into my next question which is you know their pico screencast is super super polished in my opinion it's some of the most highest quality screencasts available to us devs and alpha geeks out there so the question i have for you on that riff is uh, what kind of fine-tuning and tweaking have you had to do over time to get it to where it is now like you had mentioned earlier you were you went from quicktime pro to something else what was some of the process in really polishing the brand um Oh, and one minor thing on the other, I think people underestimate the the both the good good heartedness of people and the the real desire of people to support a good product. You know, I go to different restaurants, and if it's a restaurant I really like, I try to tip very well. And I have, um, you know, I'm, I'm into cycling. I try to buy stuff from my local bike shop, even if I know that I can get it massively cheaper online because usually I'll go to the bike shop and I'll get fantastic advice from free for free from these people. And so eh, if I pay a little bit more for a part, I've gotten a ton of great useful information from them. So I, you know, I think people underestimate that part of, of people on the internet or wherever. And, uh, you know, that can definitely make a, a difference in a business. Now, as far as tweaks over time, um, you know, there, a lot of it, part of it just came up uh, with different needs. Of course, it's a little hackish to just be pasting clips into a, um, you know, into a little video, th- uh, not even a full video editor. So I needed a full featured video editor. So I ended up getting that. I ended up see, uh, seeing a lot of different things that people were doing on TV or, uh, you know, animations and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, okay, I need to go learn Adobe After Effects and f- figure out how to do some animated titles and, and diagrams and stuff like that. So that came in. So a lot of it was just different um, different software that I I felt like wanted, I wanted to use it to distinguish myself, present uh, my product as being very high quality and very polished and 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 also being more useful or educational by being able to bring in animation where it was relevant on the business side. Um, you know, I definitely think g- working with a good, um, good business advisor is helpful. Uh, finding a really good, I mean, this ended up being kind of a, a big list, but, um, you know, I found a really good lawyer who, uh, knows a lot about the internet and digital businesses and stuff like that. So a lot of the tweaking, but but the first lawyer I worked with knew nothing of it. You know, we we spoke for a couple hours, and yeah, it was our, again about piracy and stuff like that that didn't really matter. So a lot of the tweaking I think is just you know keeping up high standards. If something's not working for you, try to improve it. Try to make it better. Um, try to find somebody who you can consult with who is going to do a better job uh, than the maybe the people that you're working with. 
which maybe is a benefit of not having a co-founder. If you, if, if you don't, haven't split the business with someone, then you're free to just keep moving on until you find different subcontractors and stuff like that who are going to do the best job for you and, and help with that. I guess that's uh, that is a good point that if you don't have a co-founder, you can sort of sit back and not be so anxious about some of these decisions and not even be as pressured and still take it back to your home base and, you know, mull over it and think about it. Does this really impact my community the right way? And I think, you know, going back to my impression on Peepco Screencast and and you in general is that, you know, I think you have a a true heart for our community and the devs and the alpha geeks out there. I think that's uh, another big reason why it's been so successful. But, you know, just kind of Having that control, not having to leverage a, a co-founder who may have a completely different opinion, that has uh, certainly probably been a very good thing for you. Yeah, and I mean, if you find somebody who who you do really uh, work well with, then that's great. But uh, yeah, it goes either way. So Peepcode, it's been around for five, almost five years now, coming in our, our fifth year right now. As it's uh, it's gone international, I guess, in, in some sense, because we're on the web. Uh, have you felt any pressure to to make peep code available in other languages uh you know localized anyway yeah i've tried that a little bit and it's a rough situation especially for a small company you know it's i'm still the only full-time employee although i do have uh regular a couple of assistants and other consultants and stuff and with the you know working with video which is unfortunately uh, makes it more difficult um i tried with when I was doing PDFs to translate a couple, but a lot of programming is so English centered that if you publish in English, then people are going to buy it. And, you know, even if that's not their first language, because they're used to reading all kinds of blog posts and other documentation in English. And then if you do publish in a different language later, then, it, you know, it's kind of too late. So you really have to have it coordinated so that all the translations are there almost simultaneously to really get a good measurement of how much benefit is it is to people. The other thing is, you know, with video, as I've upped the post-production and I'm doing a lot of different uh, tips and stuff that show up on the screen, well, that would need to be translated. And right now it's unfortunately not automated enough to to be able to just plug in some uh, t- translation file and re-render the entire video. So, at least for the moment, I'd love to do that sometime, but uh, but right now it's, it's unfortunately been a little bit more difficult. A, a good thing, though, is, you know, I'd, I'd love to have competitors or, you know, maybe if they're, they're not competitors, just other, other people doing similar things. So I know my friend Fabio Akita in Brazil... He started selling some screencasts, and he's just doing them from scratch in uh, Portuguese and selling them there. So, you know, that may be an opportunity for people in different countries to actually just just make fresh screencasts in uh, in whether whatever different languages. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I think maybe even they can probably even leverage it for some support or maybe some consulting or just being a buddy in the community. Exactly. So let's uh, let's move on to the importance of branding. I know that uh, I love the brand of Peacode. I think early on, uh, you know, with uh, with your T-shirts, you had female versions of them because we we actually do have some females in our in our community, believe it or not. But uh, they really love the pink. What was the importance of branding for you in, in terms of Peacode and how you put it out? Uh, you know, I brainstormed a bunch of different ideas. I guess if I had known that it was going to take off, I might have been a little more conservative about 
exactly how I did it, but um, yeah, of all the different ideas, peep code seemed to be a good word that rolls off the tongue and, uh, you know, kind of a scripty font. I've actually kind of gone away from the pink because some people said, oh, I arrived in it at your site and it, I saw pink and I immediately thought it was a porn site. Well, I mean, come on, people can't, pink <laughs> is no longer in the, the spectrum and we can't use pink, but, um, so mostly I've gone more to just grayscale for the logo itself and, uh, then other colors for individual screencasts. But I do think, you know, have, have something, have a word that's fun to say. I know even like power book, they did a lot of research to find the different syllables that were, caused happy thoughts in people's heads or something like that. And in the P sound and the B sound were good. And I, maybe even the K like uh Kodak. And so I, I mean, I didn't do specific research on all those things, but uh, so, you know, something short, easy to say, you know, uh, works well on a t-shirt or whatever. And now there's so many good typefaces, you know, just go find some typeface nobody else is really using. And, um, and that could be it. Or maybe you hire somebody to, to make a good icon or a logo or something like that. You know, I, I read a blog post. That's actually your first your first blog post at the Peepco blog. It was called A Serviceable Business Card. Now, this business card is very unique. And if you haven't read the article, I encourage you to go to peepco.com forward slash blog and, and check it out. Go to the archives and pull it up. But can you riff on the business card a bit here and kind of talk about what that did for you in terms of, I guess, branding, so to speak? Yeah, putting together a business card was always a fun experiment. Having a little desire to do some graphic design myself, it was always an opportunity to kind of start from scratch and have some some uh, constraints that you don't otherwise have, a specific size and, and two sides. So, you know, with the general web page, you have basically an endless canvas and, and it's just not quite the same. So... I experimented with different things, having something where the text kind of wrapped all the way around or, or like we've already said, you know, putting an interesting title on there. But eventually I had been doing a little bit of letterpress printing, even on a big old uh, press that was restored here at, uh, in a school near Seattle. And I thought, wow, it'd be fun to have something a little bit more physical, especially having completely digital product that's not physical to kind of counteract that with a, a very physical business card to hand out because I usually, I only hand out about two or three business cards a month, just kind of the, it's most people I meet either already know of peep code or can easily get to it. And then occasionally when I'll meet somebody who's, you know, not, doesn't know about it at all, then I'll, I'll hand out a business card. So I went with this place in New York city that, actually designed it and after a couple rounds back and forth uh came up with this really dark black thick paper i mean you hold it and it's like uh about four or five times thicker than the thickest baseball you know premium pro baseball card i've ever held and you know it's got the bite in it there from the the uh letter press and a little metallic ink and stuff like that so it you know it's fun because I was able to blog about it and often people will come and ask me about it because they knew it's no, it's this kind of different thing. The only uh, downside is that I did meet someone one time. I gave them my card. They, they didn't know about peep code at all. So, you know, I gave my card and they said, well, this is the second most interesting business card I've ever 
seen. I thought, well, what was the first? And he said, the first, the best business card I've ever seen had seeds in it and you put water on it. And over a course of a couple of weeks, it would grow like a chia pet into the, the logo of the company. So that's oh quite a high standard. I'm going to have to think about it if I can improve on that. Yeah, I really enjoyed the the reactions in the wild that you mentioned that blog article you just talked about, where you were actually able to even to use it for you know you, a currency that somebody had actually given you three bucks instead. You'd, you'd borrowed some fare. I can't recall the exact story, but something along the lines that was just so impressive that you know they, they almost didn't even want to accept it. They they felt like you had given them something like this special prize. Yeah, and I mean to me, what that underscores is I don't really think I'm that much of an ostentatious person, but. If you're going to have a business, you're going to promote yourself, try to make a scene somehow. I mean, a lot of people just put um, provocative blog posts or something or, or count on anger. I mean, there are a lot of companies that will will get people angry about something, and that's a way to kind of get loyalty to their business is this shared anger against someone else. And I, I don't want that. I want to have something, I want to have something positive where people can, uh, you know, have a little bit more... Put, put something, you know, there's enough negative out there in the world. Let's do something positive instead. But that doesn't mean it has to be uh, uninspired. So getting out, getting something out there that's different, that's uh, that gets people talking. I mean, that's that's what promotion marketing is all about. Uh, last question for you. In a recent blog article, you mentioned that uh, you interviewed a brain researcher who observed that the mind is a little less active when the body is kind of in a very sedentary state where it's kind of it's still uh, a low heartbeat, kind of, uh, so to speak. What are your thoughts for entrepreneurs that overwork themselves and just forget to maintain a, a healthy body or even a healthy lifestyle? I think it's a great idea for a couple reasons. I mean, Zed Shaw had a great post on very specific things that he was doing for health and and different ailments he'd had throughout uh, his programming career to excruciating detail. But I I definitely have noticed a huge difference if I when I've personally taken the advice of that brain researcher. Now I don't have a treadmill uh, mounted to my uh, desk so that I can actually walk while I'm working on a program, but I've started doing like, you know, a little bit more serious bicycling. I'm trying to work up for a century, you know, hundred miles, 160 kilometers. Um, so at least every other day I'm out there on a bike for, you know, maybe two, uh, hour and a half, at least, uh, up and down hills, you know, tr- trying to get, get out there really hard. And it's been amazing what that's done just to my, my mood you get out there, you kind of have a, a clear spot to where you don't have to think about work or, or business or whatever. And then when you come back, your your brain is a lot fresher and you're able to think about different things. And, uh, and I've noticed a huge difference. I'll even do something where, given the fact that I work from a little home office and don't have a another office, often I'm out and around, around at different coffee shops. So off on my bike, I'll ride... 15 minutes off to one place. I'll work for three hours or something like that. Then I'll hop on a bike, work, you know, bike out to another place. And I I do think it really helps uh, on, on multiple levels, just, you know, get the blood flowing, give yourself a break and, uh, and, and then, um, you know, get, get the calories burning and and stuff like that. So uh, that's, that's definitely, I, I felt like that's made a huge difference in my life. Uh, Although I've been pretty active continually, but uh, even amping that up a little bit within the next the, the last uh, six months or so. 
Yeah, I have to echo your thoughts on that too. I know that um, a healthy body certainly you know leads you to have a more healthier mind for for one thing, and then also having those breaks in your day, getting out there. Uh, seeing the world, uh, you know, sometimes you even get to see new fresh design that you wouldn't have seen by going and visiting local retailers. Plus, it's just, you know, embracing localized community. Like you said, with biking, you go and buy a bike, you know, buy your parts from local bike shops. And that's just more of that, uh, of that Jeff we talked about earlier who just really embraces his community and gives back and loves. That's awesome. But, uh, Jeff, that's all the questions I have for you. This is the, the first episode of this podcast, and I'm, it's more than an honor that you could think of to have you on and to have you riff about Peep Code and your success, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Thanks a lot. It's an honor to be on the first one, and uh, good luck to you in keeping, keeping that going and on your own business endeavors. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff.